to deal with all the incoming and outgoing mail. And they found some of these cities and dug up uh, tablets, tablets with all the data that modern bureaucracies deal with, with. And it's mainly to do with population, how many people are there, how many pay taxes, and all the buying and selling taxes as well costed into it all. It was a huge business thousands of years ago, and nothing much has changed. Nothing much has changed except that after moving down through the centuries and pulling their money out of one empire as they create the next, and flapping the one behind it, they, they, they're, they're up to the global system now. The global, the world, you see, is the little scepter she holds in her hand. And I'll be back after the following messages with more on this topic. For Real Talk Radio, you're listening to the National Intel Report with your host, John Statmiller. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, standing in for John Statmiller. From cutting through the matrix, the matrix, the world around you, as you have been taught to perceive it, and all that makes it tick and how it interacts together, And it truly is one huge web, a web of deceit, because the entire system and the entire reality that has been put into us uh, didn't happen by accident. We don't just roll down through the centuries stumbling along with politicians sorting out problems here and there on a daily basis, far, far from it. The politicians are really the fronts for very powerful families and always were. That's what democracy is, in fact. And in the U.S., too, even though it had a form of democracy within the republic, which meant it had sort of bars around it so that they couldn't uh, knock those bars down and extend their powers, well, that went down long ago. And they have extended their powers. I think it was President Wilson who first used the term openly about America being a democratic nation. The same man who fronted for other people, very powerful people behind him, and which he admitted to in his own writings eventually who gave the League of Nations the start, the embryo of a new world order, a world system, a standardized system, which had been the dream of the elite for a long, long time. I'm pretty certain for probably thousands of years. And they saw it coming into view, and the best way to get it going was to get world wars going and getting everyone involved in these world wars. Therefore, they spent about a 100 years creating alliances, building up to the wars, and then getting the wars started. It wasn't too difficult because young men, uh, who are pretty stupid, by the way, young men tend to be rather stupid. They run on hormones, and the tribal system, the tribal system is still strong within them, and they want to belong. They want to belong to the biggest gang uh, that has some kind of authority over others. And that is approved by the government. And young men having no power in their own daily lives, because most of them come from the working class or unemployed, that's generally how it is throughout the ages, they join the military. I'm not talking about drafting people in from all occupations. These guys join the military. So really they're mercenaries. And they they get off on the the national emblems that every country has been given with their flags and, and their various medals and all this kind of stuff. And they're taught to go out and kill and plunder and feel very proud of it, although the people back home generally get the real story 50 years after the war and had nothing to do with what you were told at the time. 
I mean, you were told is always propaganda because, as Karl Marx said, all wars are economic in nature. And sure enough, the big pirates at the top plunder every country they go into. Uh, that was how they, they lived down through the centuries. And some of these pirate families are allowed a certain amount of, of chess moves within this board game of theirs, this board game, which is a bunch of rules that apply to them only. That's what knighthood is all about. Knights were sworn, they took allegiance to serve a master at any cost and obey any order they were given. And so the modern knights that, that came up through the pirate era, the skull and bones going from the Knights Templars right upwards, and that was a symbol, by the way, of the Knights Templars' flag. When they, when they went to sea, it was the skull and bones, they became the pirates and they looted a good part of the planet. So they were allowed to have competition between powerful families, even though these big families were often related, in fact. And they push each other out the way sometimes, and, and take over their other countries, but they always spare their cousins. And that's what kings and queens were about done through the ages. They had ongoing wars, which are tremendously profitable, and it also serves the purpose of depopulation, something going back to the days of ancient Greece. Now, most of the Grecian islands in the Aegean Sea uh, were, were just that. They were islands. They, they could only have so much of a population and so the leaders of those different islands had agreements that every so often they'd have wars. They'd supply the, 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 the loans for those wars. They'd tax the people for the wars, and they would kill off uh, so many of the people. They'd also have all, they'd own the munitions. At that time, it was all spears and, and breastplates and all this kind of stuff. And nothing much has changed. If we jump forward in time to the 1800s when Mr. Malthus was uh, the top economist for the British East India Company and the British Crown, really the European Crown, because it's all linked together. Uh, he came out with his, his writings on population. People should read this because uh, he was an economist, and economists factor in future projected populations, uh, debt, how much is owed by nations, how many they'll need to pay off that debt on estimates and all these projections, how many people would be surplus and would eat into that debt, and looking at the poor, who were always a problem for them, uh, they found ways of getting rid of them. And Malthus said that they should put the, the poor in public housing. Uh, housing, of course, would be poorly built and uh, crammed together and put them in marshy areas where they'd have diseases break out. And it would, he called it popular, actually positive population checks. That's what he called them. Those were the terms he used as a top economist for the British Crown and the East India Company. Everyone in the East India Company was a member of royalty or a cousin of royalty. And even Elihu Yale, that was one of the founding members that founded Yale University, uh, was, a, was a, a, a cousin as well. So they, they set up their plans long in advance, even for the Americas. But they needed to bring populations down occasionally when, when it didn't uh, fit into the economic system. At one time, they had to breed up the Americas. And when they, they first started putting settlers into the Americas, by various means, I mean, people don't like to leave their homes. They had to get uh, things going to make folk leave their homes and go and open up this country uh, at that, that time, it was not uh, a nice place to just walk in and live. You had to 
cut down trees, forests, drain swamps, start farming, uproot trees by manpower and horsepower, hard, hard work. And the death toll was pretty high. Most folk didn't live past 50 and in these circumstances. And they had to create ways to get them in, so they created lots and lots of laws, penal laws, and put magistrates out there in England and other countries in Europe, because they're all in the same boat. All these countries are linked together with the same system running them and the same families at the top. And uh, eventually, uh, you couldn't walk out the door without breaking a law. And they would then arrest you, go in front of the magistrate who could evict you right away, and you're off on a ship and off to the Americas. They tried it too. The first slaves in the Americas they brought over were white men, from mainly from Britain. And uh, the, the French were doing it in their colonies too. But uh, that's where you get uh, the red neck from, actually red shanks initially, because they, they wore the breeches down to their knee. And the white men got burned, a lot of sunburn at the back of there, because they're always bending down towards the sun, and uh, backs to the sun, and they get burns on their, their legs. But they didn't last too long. They weren't up to the high heat in the south and so on. And so they brought in, even tried with American Indians and, and killed a lot of them. And then they brought in the black slaves. And uh, it's quite the, the history lesson and the horror lesson, because history is horror, in actual fact. Uh, up into the 1800s, kings authorized historians to write their, their memoirs, basically, to give his story. That's what his story is, his stories. And they always had wrote glowing reports to the king and how beneficent he was and how loved he was by all the people. And it's all farce, it's all fairy tales. These guys down through the ages were spoiled psychopathic tyrants who were interrelated with all the other kings and queens across Europe, whom they intermarried freely, and they ruled with an iron fist. And right up into the, the 1900s, they were having public hangings, even in Britain, with people who tried to start unions up. The last two, I think, were hung at Stirling in Scotland. This for a show to the public not to do the same thing. That's how hard and vicious these people were at the top. And they also created rebellions. They created rebellions in Scotland primarily with a handful of clans backing Bonnie Prince Charlie, as they call them, who came over from Italy. He spoke Italian and French. He'd been in exile. And that started off a, a mini-rebellion. And they used that as an excuse to clear the highlands, the entire highlands pretty well, of Scotland. And they put them off into primarily the Americas to settle the country. That's how you get to, to move people. You must get an excuse. You, you make it happen, and then you, you follow up. Many of these boats, too, <clears throat> every London crook and merchant banker, the merchant bankers owned all the, the tardy little ships that were lit in water in. Many of the families could watch their, their own relatives sink just off the coast because, because dozens of the boats did sink, crowded too, and because uh, they put everything into service to try and get these millions of people outside the country and populate the Americas. Then they tried it with other countries, and also, for a stroke of luck, they had the Irish famine, and then that started off a whole bunch more coming in, good-working class people, pretty sturdy and rugged, and that's what they wanted. That's how you do things from a banker's point of view, from an economist's point of view. You need something done, so you create the circumstances to allow yourself to do it. And since you have no opposition, 
uh, because all the bankers are in cahoots. Look at the banking families that run the U.S. and England and France and Germany and all the rest of them. It's the same banking families. And they have their headquarters, at least some of them do so do, in the city of London, which is a sovereign state status, just like Rome does, and Washington, D.C. So we're looking at, again, a long-term agenda with an elite group of people who plan to bring us into a global society where they won't need us all. I'll be back with more about it after these messages. Brotherhood of Secrecy. 
and down through the ages, again, uh, they took over many little places that go in and trade, and then they'd introduce silver mainly at that time, silver, eventually gold, get the public to accept it, uh, and they would take it back from them in exchange for goods and back and forth until they got used to it. And then they would go to the head honcho, the king, and lend him money. And before you knew it, the whole country was in debt. <clears throat> and the king didn't mind because he could live high in the hog and get all the goodies brought in by the Phoenicians. And, uh, and that's, how the, that's how this aligned, this symbiosis began with royalty and the traders, who were also merchant bankers. They, they lent money as well. And eventually, these Phoenicians had coastal towns set up which were factory towns, and everybody in the factory towns were actually slaves, making all the produce that then took to other countries and conned the next system and, and took it over. That's how it was done. When, they, when they didn't, uh, a country wouldn't comply, uh, they'd go back to all the countries that had already taken over, uh, tell the old king there that they weren't happy that this one country that was not going to accept their trading goods and was not going to accept their money system, and they'd go to war with that country. And they'd sit back and they'd supply all the armies, of course, too, with all that they needed. And they'd reap massive profits. You know, nothing has changed down to the present day. Nothing, nothing at all has changed down to the present day. And in fact, if you look at the histories of ITT and uh, General Motors and Ford uh, and General Electric and all these big companies that you think are uh, your institutions, they're really big, big fronts, all intermerged with the big foundations, which are fronts for the banking system and the fraternities that run the world. These fraternities generally go back all the way to London again, like the Royal Institute for International Affairs and Council on Foreign Relations, same branch in the U.S., only it's called a different name, because you're still supposed to think you're, you're an independent nation, you see, only for the taxpayer. And they run the entire world. And during the Cold War, this became more evident when the scientists said this war will be won by those with the best sciences, the most advanced sciences. And it was odd to me to watch every year in newspapers the top scientists in Britain and the U.S. being sent over to Russia to meet the top scientists there. Because if you were truly in a Cold War, uh, that was supposed to be very, very real. Um, the taxes were doubling, and they pay for it all. And all the nuclear missiles were never going to use. Uh, then why would you let your top scientists meet with the top scientists of Russia when supposedly uh, they're always going through this game of double agent, people getting bought off to the other side? You would not allow that to happen if you thought you had advanced science. You wouldn't let them meet each other. They're the last ones you'd allow to meet each other if the war was going to be won with high technology. But that's what happened, because the Cold War, which is a farce to, to get the people in the Russian side working as fast as it could for peanuts, and to get the U.S. side being taxed all the more to pay for high-tech exploration. That's what it was for. And I'll be back. I think this message is coming up. Yep, I'll be back after these following messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
the National Intel Report, the real talk radio show. Hi, folks. On what? Back with Cutting Through the Matrix, standing in for John Stadmiller. And just going through some of the, the history of this very, very old world, of the same con game going on over and over and over by the same descendants of the same families who interbreed like no one else does on the planet. They marry their cousins, sometimes in times gone by they've married their sisters to keep it all in the family. And that also keeps the wealth in the family and all the secrets of how it's done in the family. But we have too much information on them today for them to keep it totally quiet. But they do to give us lots of distractions and fantastical things to amaze us. And that seems to be what most folk like rather than the bitter truth. Now we've got Bob from Texas on the line. Are you there, Bob? Hello? Hello. Hi. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I may, this may be a critical phone call. Are you okay with that? A critical phone call? Yes. Uh, does, does that mean the line is going to go hot or burn? No, it means that I'm going to make some statements that may you may interpret as critical. Okay, go ahead. You know, you talk very fast. <laughs> and uh, that raises a red flag to me because I think you... You know, there are, there are many matrices. In fact, there's an infinite number of matrices. And you have, you have obviously thought about things very hard, and you selected out one particular matrix, okay? Yep. Now, it's not the matrix that's important of all those infinite number. What's important is the glitch in the matrix. The pieces the that don't fit. You follow? Yeah, yeah, just repeat that last part. It's the pieces that don't fit that mm -hmm. contain the information. All of all of the statements you've made really have no informational value because you've made, you've studied it so long. You've made it fit into one. Just one of the infinite number of possible Which one do you, you think that you're going to kick it with? Then? Well? Which one do you think you're going to kick it with? I can't... I didn't hear you? You're talking about something else going to be the answer. What will it be? Well, for instance, you were talking about how Wall Street got its name, right? Yeah. Well... I looked it up on the Internet. You know how Wall Street got its name? Go ahead. It said, uh, Wall Street, it, its name is a direct reference to a wall that was erected by the Dutch settlers That's from right. the southern tip of Manhattan Island mm -hmm. in the 17th century. Yep. During this time, a war between the English and Dutch threatened to spill over onto the island colonies. So the Dutch, located at the southernmost part of the island, decided to erect a defensive wall. Yeah. So there's another interpretation of where Wall Street came from. Why is it still called Wall Street? Well, you know, I have no idea, but... You know about the wall between church and state? Well... You know the, the wall between royalty and the public? You know the wall between banks and the public as well? 
Well, those are all things that you can project onto it, okay? You, the word wall will allow you to project many different... The word wall will allow you to... It, the word wall is ambiguous. And it, it, it will... Well, why, why are you wasting time about a wall here? What do you want to say? You're the one who brought up wall, the wall between church and state. I was just responding to your... No, I asked you what the answer was to it. There, what I'm trying to tell you is, I don't believe your answer any more than anyone else's answer. Good for you. Good for you. Okay. Good for you. Well, you you're not going to tell us you, what you, it What is, you need right? to incorporate is the fact that you could be wrong. And then you may actually, in other words, it's the glitch in the matrix. You don't have any glitches anymore. You You made everything fit. And... That means you made, whenever you create a picture of something, there's always signal and there's always noise. And if you think hard enough about something, you will make the noise fit into your picture. Okay, that, so, that's so everything, that, everything is quite normal then, is it? Pardon me? You think everything is quite normal? No, of course I don't think everything is quite normal, and of course I have my own prejudices. I'm, I'm just sure trying, I'm just I'm just to, trying to slow you down yeah. a little bit and get you to realize that that you're a little too fluent, fluent, and that raises, at least to me, a red flag. Okay, that's nice talking to you. Thanks for calling. Goodbye. Bye now. Yeah, I can remember going once to a church and arguing with uh, was a Sunday school teacher and. Uh, they accused me of having the, the, the sin, the sin of knowledge, because I could quote the Bible back to them, you see. And this is the sort of thing you get with people who are stuck in limbo, because you can think for yourself and figure things out and have a memory to put things together, because you do remember your histories and major events. Uh, those who can't will tend to attack you just as much, because they haven't figured it out, and part of them doesn't want to. They'd rather believe it's all a supernatural game. And it's not supernatural to that extent. What seems to be supernatural is the way that it's done. But when you think that the high sciences are all involved in this, and you do understand economics and how they work and how many avenues economics goes into, which is pretty well everything in your life, and everything to do with whole populations, to do with their lives, uh, it starts to make sense then. And slavery is nothing new. And what I do is quote the big boys' books themselves, not the conspiracy books about them or the sci-fi books about them, but the books that the ones done through the centuries have published themselves. And uh, beginning with the show, for instance, I talked about Thomas Malthus. And Malthus uh, wanted to put the poor people in what they call poor houses where they'd be crammed together, uh, preferably on swampy areas. And it worked to death. I don't think you know that it's that the, the poor houses where they put the poor, um, the poor unfortunates, as they called them, mainly women and their families, where their husbands had died through overwork generally during the industrial era, uh, they put them in these poor houses and they worked them to death. You lived maybe three to six months maximum in those houses and they profited from them at the same time because they manufactured things as well. Very much like the prison camps in Germany in World War II. Uh, they'd use you to, to manufacture things before you ki they killed you when you were completely exhausted and worn out. Very, very efficient. And IBM were the guys who did the Cardex system, 
pre-computer, as they were called, the Kardec system, they gave all the numbers out too. And you find these big companies, as I say, still run the world today, but they're integrated with the secret services, with the banking systems, and with the big institutions. They all work together. If they did not work together, they'd be at war with each other all the time because they'd all have different ideas of what they wanted to do with the world. These guys work together towards this new world order of theirs and their planned society. Now, Malthus, in his own book, came out with the uh, same methods to eliminate the poor and the excess population that they knew would actually, in a hundred-odd years' time or so, uh, when they started bringing down the industrial era, they knew they'd have too many of them. And he, he was talking about for that time to come and how they should just kill them off with these positive population checks like disease and plagues, he called them too. We need plagues and disease and wars for positive checks on population growth. And uh, uh, that's how it really, really works. And nothing's changed because here's a story which most people will think is coincidence, especially the Alaska caller. He'll think this is coincidence because they like to like believe in coincidence theories. And it's MSNBC News. And this is today's news as well. It says here, now you know that they've been putting the people in trailers that were put out of New Orleans after the hurricane, and they're also putting families into these trailers. FEMA trailers are called. FEMA supplies them. And I'm sure some big high mason has the contract to, to make them. And uh, they put them in these trailers, and it says, uh, Toxic Gas Pervasive and FEMA Units Test Show. Nearly all trailers' mobile homes exceed long-term formaldehyde standards. And this is by uh, Mike Brunker, MSNBC, the 12th of November. More than two years after hurricanes Katrina and Rita battered the Mississippi Gulf Coast, private tests of FEMA travel trailers and mobile homes provided to storm victims indicate that high levels of formaldehyde gas in the units is much more widespread than the government has acknowledged. The previously undisclosed test results from nearly 600 units reviewed by MSNBC.com found that 95% of the temporary housing units provided by FEMA measured at least twice the CDC's, the Center for Disease Control, because they control diseases, maximum recommended level for long-term exposure to the toxic gas, so it's twice as high. In some extreme cases, the levels were 70 times the long-term standard, 70 times. The tests were conducted by the Sierra Club, well, they're friendly, right? And a Galveston, Texas law firm that is involved in federal litigation against the manufacturers of the travel trailers and mobile homes that FEMA distributed. So, and it goes on here to say that the federal government promised to test inhabited trailers and mobile homes, but has not yet followed through. Many of the trailers and mobile homes have been occupied for two years, which makes the high formaldehyde levels a scientific mystery. It's a mystery. We can do all this stuff with nanotechnology and analyze it, but we just don't know why this is happening, since these levels typically decline significantly when units are ventilated by residents, and that's not true, because everyone in the building trade knows that this stuff gives off gas for 40 years, especially when the sun hits it. He says, I really can't account for it. It's really surprising, said Mary Devaney, a certified industrial hygienist whose Vancouver, Washington firm has conducted more than 100 of the tests. I really can't account for it. The results for mobile homes are especially puzzling as the units had been presumed to be, presumed, 
to be safer than travel trailers. Mobile homes, which are mounted on a permanent chassis and contain at least 320 square feet of living space, um, are intended for long-term occupancy. The level of formaldehyde in building materials used in their manufacture is regulated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And what was it Malthus said? Yeah, put you in certain places and so on, be bad for your health. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has halted distribution of travel trailers described as campers no more than 45 feet in length for temporary housing because of the formaldehyde concerns and said it is working to move all 52,520 households currently residing in travel trailers nationwide into permanent housing. It's also said it will provide temporary housing to anyone who expresses a desire to move out the trailers because of formaldehyde. But the agency continues to provide mobile homes to disaster victims, including 50% people left homeless by last month's wildfires in Southern California, according to FEMA spokesman Mary Margaret Walker. The agency also has agreed to donate up to 2,000 unused mobile homes. <laughs> so he's another group that want rid of the Native American tribes. Boy, that, that makes sense. It's very Malthusian. Senator Tim Johnson uh, announced in June. Walker did not respond to queries about the number of people on the Gulf Coast living in FEMA-provided mobile homes. No, he won't, but it is believed to be substantially lower than those in travel trailers. Believed, again, we're going to scrub that last part. Formaldehyde, a chemical used in a wide variety of products, is considered a human carcinogen or cancer-causing substance by the International Agency for Research on Cancer and a probable human carcinogen by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So these folk are all coming down with all of the symptoms of it, which include bloody noses, respiratory distress like asthma, sinus infections, bronchitis, skin rashes, and burning eyes. And the gas is emitted by composite wood and plywood panels in the FEMA unit. Now, composite wood is just where they get all the waste products from the chips of wood and glue them all together with this formaldehyde. The big chemical companies are behind it. And anyone who's used that in the long term or in a factory, which I have done, you end up with all these symptoms, bloody noses, uh, massive bronchitis and infections and so on. So they knew exactly what they were doing when they built them, only they made sure that these are up to 70 times higher in formaldehyde than, than regular ones. And who does it hit? Well, it's not the upper middle class. It's the working class people generally who are moved into these units. And that's how it's done. We're supposed to think it's all... Just coincidence, just coincidence. Even though all these things, all these boards, etc., are tested in every part of the production for quality control or exceeding certain standards, but they're 70% more likely to give higher doses of formaldehyde. It's amazing they got through, isn't it? What a coincidence with all these regular factions standing by watching. And that's how it works. Now we have another caller on the line. Are you there? Hello? Hello? Hello, yes. <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I'd like your opinion about this latest little Cold War going on between the, uh, Russia and the United States. Do you think it's for real or is it bogus? I think it's bogus because, I mean, I mean, uh, you understand the history of Russia. I'd like to ask another question and then hang up. I'm at work and I'm also on a cell phone. I don't want to fry my brain, yeah, so you ahead. can answer. And the second question is... Uh, I had asked you once on Dr. Deagle's show about your opinion of the, the show uh, Lord of the Rings, which I think is great, and I think you would be uh, Frodo defeating the Eye of Sauron, you know, mm -hmm. and you were kind of like saying I didn't get the point of it. Uh, 
So anyway, your comments about the Lord of the Rings a little a little deeper than the last time I'd asked you. So yeah. uh, I'll hang up and listen to the answer. Okay. Okay. And uh, but to take the last one first to do with uh, the Lord of the Rings. So you understand who the author was and where he was based when he wrote that. And he lived in the university. He lived his whole life in the university. And he was fanatical on his writings to get the words and the words they would use in this particular language that they used perfect, as though it was a factual uh, language, you see. And he had various uh, poet, uh, high poets, uh, friends, well, well known and so on, who, who's, who tried to talk to him often, but he was engrossed in his work. He took this very, very seriously to, to put out all these novels out. So it was more than just novels, because the, the ring that binds them all is the, is the, is the ring of, of um, its interrelationship or intermarriage, in a sense, as well. It's, it's the, the different levels that run the world of royal, royal levels, and, and then you have economic levels, the banking levels. Then you have the literary levels that give you your thoughts and novels and, and write movies and so on, scores. And then entertain. All, all these things are part of the other rings, but uh, it would bind them all in their ignorance. It would bind them all, especially the peasants down below. They'd be bound by this ring, interlocked forever. And um, I'll be back after the forum message with more on this. Russia and the U.S. is concerned, 
if we go into the Bolshevik Revolution and read um, who funded the Bolshevik Revolution, and you'll find that um, the banks of New York and London, the big bankers, has always uh, funded it into power and funded it all through until it became the Soviet system. And 200 families moved in at the end of World War I into Russia uh, to, to rule. And those families still rule today. They still rule Russia today. Very wealthy families. And some of them, like, from, like Trotsky, um, or Bronstein, whose name was from New York, uh, he changed his name. Uh, he, he was from New York, and he became a leader of the revolution over there, too. And the Russians thought he was actually Russian, but he wasn't. And those same families still run Russia today, so it's all a cozy group, all talking to the, the same bankers. And interestingly, in the British papers, when the so-called Berlin Wall came down, another wall came down, then uh, you, Hadrian's Wall too, by the way, in England, uh, you find that um, uh, a, a guy called Solomon was the chief banker of the Soviet system. And of course, everyone said, well, like, how can that be? Because there was no private investment. That's not true. They allowed private banks to exist as long as they didn't claim to make profit off labor. That's how it was worded. And this guy left the Soviet Union with the wealth of uh, the Soviet Union, that whole era, and he went over to see who? His cousin Rothschild in England. And that was in the British newspapers at the time. So it's all a big scam, a big scam. But what they did accomplish during that Soviet era was to get two sides working fervently towards uh, research and development for all the technologies that we're now seeing come in today, which are going to monitor and control all of us. That was the point of it all. We're back after the following messages. Take America back. 